Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. If you're here for the first time, my name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors. Glad you're here. Got a lot to do, so let's chop it up. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through just a few verses today. Now, I know that I have a penchant for exaggeration and hyperbole. I, I realize that. I realize I, sometimes I, I overdo things. It's just my personality. My dad is a, an Italian football coach, and I, I get it honest, all right? Uh, my, kind of most of my communication sort of breaks down into a halftime speech when we're down by, you know, 14 points. But really, the verses that we're going over today are super, super, super important. And here's the deal is that the, the scenes that we're going to look at today, very briefly in the Gospel of Mark, are, are two scenes, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, which are also recounted in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. For many of us that have spent time in church, they're such familiar scenes that, that we, we really lose their significance. You know, they just have kind of boiled themselves down to like a, a coloring sheet or a flannel graph presentation, you know, when you were a kid. But they are absolutely essential to the gospel, to what's at stake in our redemption and God's glory. So and we're going we're gonna to unpack uh, Jesus' baptism and his temptation and the significance that it holds for us in the gospel. As you're finding Mark chapter 1, and by the way, if you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chair in front of you, that's on page 588, and you're welcome to use that Bible. In fact, if you don't have one, I'd love for you to follow along with that Bible, and take that Bible home as your own. Um, we want you to keep that and read it. As you're looking for it, let me just give you a, an update. Reynold mentioned kind of just a few updates on things we haven't heard about lately. Uh, one more sort of important update, which really we don't have anything new to report, but I know that about a month, a few weeks before I left on sabbatical for the month of July, um, we told you about the situation with our building here, which sits inside inside of the shopping complex here, which is just this corner of Whittlesey and Airport Thruway. We told you that the owners of the building are in bankruptcy, and then we sent out a letter. I'm letting you know that that we uh, felt like maybe the Lord was positioning us to be in the play for buying this this center and that uh, we may need to raise uh, a large amount of money pretty soon. There's been no update. I know some of you have wondered, like, what's going on? What's the status of that? Well, it, it really think kind of the can has been kicked down the road a little bit, and there's really nothing to report. We're still, it's still kind of in court proceedings, and there's nothing new to report. So just to let you know, we're still kind of where we were uh, a month and a half ago, and uh, continue to pray for us as we, as we um, think about these things. And then uh, our next one another meeting will be uh, not the first Sunday of September, because that's Labor Day, but then the second Sunday, I believe that's September 9th. Lord willing, we'll have an update at that meeting, and uh, we really encourage members to come to that. And of course, if you're not a member, but this is just your home church, you're welcome to come to that as well. And uh, Lord willing, we'll have an update for you, but nothing new to report. All right, well, let's get into it. Mark chapter 1. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to just read, and we're going to work our way through these few short verses and ask the Lord to help us. As Reynolds mentioned, um, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, really glad you're here. If you're a busted up, war-torn, uh, fatigued follower of Jesus that is battling sin, like me, I'm really glad that you're here. 
And I hope that today these, these verses and, and what we have to think, say about them is, is going to be very helpful to us. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll read. Father, I thank you for your great kindness to us and giving us each other as the church and giving us your word which is as Wayne read earlier living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword it's it's powerful for salvation it hits our hearts and it it brings dead hearts alive and causes them to see Jesus and it encourages people who already believe in him and equips them for life and godliness. It has everything we need. So I pray this morning that as we work our way through these two very short scenes out of the Gospel of Mark, that you would encourage your people and that for my friends that are in this room today that may not yet have trusted in Jesus, their hope is in other things. Maybe their hope is in themselves or their relative morality or maybe they're thinking they're trusting in you but they're not really Lord, would you be so kind as to give the gift of repentance and faith and give them a new heart so that they can turn away from themselves, turn away from broken counterfeits, and trust in Jesus for life forevermore. Help us, Lord. These are monumental things before us. And I am a crooked stick. But you, you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And Lord, I... I need your help now. Help us as we think on these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so remember where we covered last week. There's this announcement by Mark that Jesus is the Son of God, tying him in with the Old Testament prophecies and passages from Isaiah, that the whole Old Testament is pointing forward towards Jesus, this one who finally and fully will fulfill all of the hopes of God's people, the Jews, the Old Testament nation of Israel. And Jesus comes and he now is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, the one who will come and finally and fully wipe away sin and lead God's people. And so Mark establishes that at the beginning, introduces us to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and now very quickly moves into the scene where Jesus is baptized. Let's read in verse 9. It says, in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So I want us to stop there for just a second. I want us to, although Mark moves very quickly, I want us to just sort of pause and sort of get ourselves into this scene. Imagine the reluctance and the, the awkwardness on John's part. Remember, we read last week that John has just said that there's one coming after me who's mightier than I. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, which would have been like the responsibility of the lowest slave on the totem pole. And now Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, God the Son in the flesh, is waiting in line. Just, let's just take in the humility of this scene. Jesus is waiting in line to be baptized by his cousin. And just, just, just sort of take in the humility of that moment. I mean, 
isn't there a sort of line psychology? You know, have you ever waited in a long line and you kind of sort of develop a rapport with the person sort of next to you and you, you know, you're kind of checking out, you know, whether it's the grocery store, you know, and there's a long line and you're kind of rolling your eyes like, ah, can you believe this poor clerk who doesn't want to cry baby? I mean, you know how that kind of works? And so Jesus, to some degree, is, I mean, there's a whole, the whole country of Judea is coming out to be baptized by John in the Jordan River, and, and, and so Jesus is in the line. There's no sort of fanfare. He didn't cut in the front of the line. He's not announcing himself yet as the Son of God. No miracles. This is pre-ministry. The, the creator of the universe is waiting in line to be baptized by his cousin who he also created. Can you imagine, like, sort of years later, you're the guy maybe standing in line next to Jesus, when we went to, we went to uh, San Diego, we go to San Diego, visit my parents every summer. A few years ago, we were in line at Legoland next to Steffi Graf. I'm not really particularly a big tennis uh, player. or I'm actually not a tennis player at all, um, I, but I'm not particularly a tennis fan, but I know the big-time people. And Steffi Graf was there. She's married to Andre Agassi, you know, and they got the little kid that was in the little, the little camera commercials or whatever. And I was just kind of like, wow, like I'm in line next to Steffi Graf. And for the rest of my life, I feel this sort of strange connection to Steffi Graf. Because we were in line next to her for like five minutes. And imagine being in line next to Jesus. And so Jesus, in all humility, is waiting in line to be baptized by John. Why, though? Let's ask ourselves this question. Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, remember, he's... The perfect son of God. We're going to read about in just a little bit from Hebrews about his sinlessness and his perfection. And I think most of us probably understand. Uh, you may be very re relatively new or completely new to Christianity, but the whole crux of our faith is that Jesus isn't just a man. He's God. He's the perfect God-man who never sinned. And so Jesus has no need to be baptized because this baptism that John is preaching is a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus has no sin, so why would he, I mean, it's a, one thing to humble yourself as a creator to be baptized, but it's another thing to be baptized when you don't even need to be baptized because you haven't sinned, you're perfect, there's no need for repentance for Jesus. Well, we, we get a clue as to why Jesus is baptized in the other account of the gospel, uh, of, in the gospel of Matthew, the other account of his baptism, and in that more fuller explanation of Jesus' baptism as his cousin John is sort of arguing with him and saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus, why are I, you should be baptizing me. Why are you coming to be baptized? And Jesus tells him there in Matthew chapter 3, he says, no, no, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. And what, what's Jesus alluding there to? Well, he's probably referring to this Old Testament custom in, in Leviticus and Exodus where God told Moses that before a man could become a priest, that they were to go through a sort of ceremonial cleansing or ritual washing. And Jesus is now about to begin his ministry as our final and full, ultimate priest. And so Jesus is really signaling there that he is, he's not above this. He's now entering into his priesthood and is obedient even to the Old Testament. He's even showing that he's not a, he is coming into humanity. Even though he didn't need to be baptized, there's no sin in him. He is humbling himself to become a priest in the same way that these Old Testament priests would. But I think there's something even deeper than just sort of identifying or obeying an Old Testament mandate by God. Think about this. Now, Jesus, in his baptism, is 
He is identifying with us. He is, he is signaling what his ministry is going to be. And we, we need to understand what baptism is all about to understand what Jesus is picturing for us here in his baptism. Baptism is really about the display, a picture of God's judgment on sin. Later on, decades later, Peter will write in his letter that baptism for Christians corresponds with the flood, with, with God's judgment on sin. And so what baptism is signifying is how we are being judged by God and the floodwaters of his wrath are coming down to, to, to vanquish, to judge sin. And God in his kindness is then bringing his people alive. He's resurrecting his people up out of those floodwaters. And what Jesus is really saying in his baptism is not just that he's going to be our priest, our advocate with God, but that he is going to take on judgment for us. He's going he's to become like us. He's going to become one of us so that he can be our substitute and bear the wrath of God for all who will turn and trust in him. Think about it. Just again, just take in the humility of, of Jesus' baptism. Let's keep going in verse Verse 10, and when he, meaning Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so think about what's happening here. I mean, can you imagine this scene again? Can you imagine the guy being in line next to Jesus? You're like, you're the next in line. Can you imagine the, the, just the, the cosmic, universal significance of what's happening here? Jesus' identity is being shouted from the heavens. So in his baptism, Jesus is identifying with us. But as he comes up out of those baptismal waters, God is identifying himself with Jesus. And so in, in, that, in that Jordan River right there, Jesus is being proclaimed. His identity is being revealed to all of the cosmos, not just to all the people, but to all the demons and all Satan and, and all his realm. And we'll see what the reaction is here in just a second. He's being proclaimed. His identity is revealed. He's, he's a man, and he's also God. God the Father. You see the Trinity here? God the Father is dispatching the Spirit to come down on God the Son. And right there in Jesus' baptism, Jesus identifies with us, and God identifies with Jesus, and we have Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, now proclaimed. J.I. Packer, a British theologian who's getting up in his, in his years now, probably in his mid-90s, very, very helpful writer, wrote a book called Knowing God. We sell it in our resource center. And in that book on the incarnation or the fact that God became man in the flesh, he says that just that idea, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. And in Jesus' baptism, the incarnation, the fact that God became flesh, that God, Jesus is God and Jesus is man is being proclaimed. And so now what is the reaction to this? Verse 12, while his hair is still wet. I mean, you can just imagine this. Immediately then, in verse 12, look what happens. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So now, you can see the, the decisiveness of the Trinity. God the Father is proclaiming His pleasure in the Son. God the Spirit now 
is driving God the Son out into the wilderness. Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Just four brief verses. Now let's think about Jesus' temptation here. Think about this moment. Now, it's not as elaborated as fully as Matthew and Mark are, but think about what's happening here. Jesus has just been baptized, comes up from the baptismal waters of the Jordan River. God the Father pronounces his pleasure in the Son. And now we see the Trinity on a mission. Jesus immediately is driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness, and Satan is there waiting to tempt him. And here in the wilderness, we see heaven and hell colliding. We see the dual purposes of Jesus' temptation. In one sense, we see Satan ready to tempt Jesus, and his purpose is always destruction. So, so, so I want you to kind of distinguish here between God testing and Satan tempting, right? Because sometimes those two things sort of feel similar in our mind, and, and sometimes we wonder, is God tempting me, or what's going on here? Listen, God never tempts us, and he's not tempting Jesus here. But he is, in a sense, testing Jesus to fulfill all righteousness for this role that Jesus is going to play in his ministry on earth. And Satan is there to tempt Jesus. And so what we have here is heaven and hell colliding, both in the same event, each with different purposes. God's purpose is to prove his son and his faithfulness, and Satan's purpose is to tempt and destroy Jesus' ministry before it even gets off the ground. Now let's look at Jesus' temptation and just want to unpack this beautiful event and then a few thoughts on how, what this means for our temptation and fight against sin and a few ways that we can fight temptation ourselves. The Bible also speaks about Jesus' temptation in the book of Hebrews. So let's go to Hebrews. We're going to be in there for a second. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Wayne read from it this morning to kick us off in our call to worship. I want you to see now, as we look at Jesus' temptation, why he was tempted, and what was won in his temptation and victory over sin, I want you to see the gospel essential purposes behind Jesus' temptation. This is absolutely essential to the gospel and to understanding well what's happening in our redemption. In Jesus' temptation, he's doing much more than just sort of going through the motions and defeating Satan. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, which Wayne read at the beginning, and I'll read again starting in verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that means that there's, there's no thing that anybody in this room is facing that Jesus has not faced and endured and defeated. There's no type of temptation. There's no scenario. There's no situation that the God-man, Jesus himself, has not humbled himself to face for us and endured it and defeated it. 
And then Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may have been, Paul or one of his associates, continues on. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, so, so as we're going to look at here in just a second, as we fight temptation, we're not fighting temptation with a, a Father God up in heaven who is sort of scornful towards us because we continue to give in time and time and time again to that temptation. We have a merciful and faithful high priest who is there with us in that moment who is not unacquainted with our struggle. So let's go now to Hebrews chapter 2. Just a few chapters over to the left. Hebrews chapter 2, incredibly important verses. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Speaking of Jesus' temptation. The writer says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. It means he has real flesh and real blood. Not some sort of hologram. It's like not... Jesus isn't like a, like a fake, sort of strange, mystical human. He's really human. He's re- like Jesus was in a nursery somewhere in Jerusalem. Like if like somebody had to watch him, somebody had to feed him. He was dependent on his mother and father for provision. He's real. His flesh and blood is real. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. So what that scripture is telling us is clearly that God has deemed that since humanity lost its its righteousness in the garden when Adam and Eve fell, then through Jesus' perfection and obedience and reclaimed righteousness, that's the only way. And then his sacrifice of that perfect righteousness is the only way that this power of death can be vanquished and reclaimed. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us, right? That's, That's not just Jewish people. It's all those who have faith because the children of Abraham are children of faith. Verse 17, therefore, listen to this. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, here's here's a big word now, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does propitiation mean? It means a sacrifice before God that satisfies completely God's justice, God's wrath for sin, and extinguishes it and turns it into God's grace and favor. So Jesus is, unlike the Old Testament priests who had to give a sacrifice year after year after year because they were not perfect and because the goat wasn't perfect and because because the whole system wasn't perfect, but just a shadow to point towards Jesus, He doesn't have to do it year after year, but he can finally, fully, not just for one year, but forever, make satisfaction for God's righteousness and God's law and God's holiness by his own perfect life. And so Jesus makes satisfaction. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. For Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So so what's happening in Jesus' temptation? He is, listen, this is really critical. He is reclaiming human righteousness. He is standing where Adam stood 
and failed, and all of us have failed with Adam. And he is reclaiming what Adam lost and now giving it to all those who will turn and trust in him. Let me show you that in the scriptures. Now just go. I know we're flipping around a lot, but this is critical. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I know there's a guy in the congregation here who says, no matter where I start in the Bible, eventually I'm going to get in Romans. I know. You're going to mock me. Whatever. Do your thing, baby. But it's a good book. It's the book. I mean, this is, the, this is like the Magna Carta of gospel doctrine, Romans. Romans 5, verse 18 and 19. Romans 5 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, along with Romans 3 and 8 and 12 and <laughs> 9. And <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, Romans 8. Listen to this. Okay, so, so what we're thinking is here, we're seeing the gospel essential purposes in Jesus' temptation. See, Jesus' temptation wasn't just so he could identify us. It's not just so that he can be up in heaven and say, oh gosh, I know what you're going through. It's not just all sympathy. There's righteousness at stake here. And so Jesus is standing where Adam stood, and he's reclaiming what Adam and you and I lost through his perfect life, through his God-man flesh living a perfect life. This is what, this is the argument that Paul is making in Romans 5. So let me read in verse 18. He says, therefore, as one trespass or sin led to the condemnation for all man. So what he's referring there is, as Adam and Eve have fallen in the garden and then become the representative for all of humanity. We are all children. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. In a physical sense, certainly. I mean, you can trace all of our DNA back to our first parents. But even more importantly, in a spiritual sense, they are the representative head of fallen humanity, right? Everything comes through them, and sin has entered in through them, and as a result, they have, they have spread their sin and the death that entered through their sin through all of humanity. Friends, that's why, that's why we really make a big deal, and some people kind of shriek about this, we really make a big deal about the inherent sinfulness of man. People are not born neutral. You aren't born a pretty good American or a pretty good whatever you are or wherever you are from. We are all, the Bible is clear about this, born as children under God's wrath. Ephesians 2 says that. Romans 3 says that. We don't like that because we're good Americans and we watch Fox News and we vote Republican, by golly. And, and when you buy into that sort of thing, and I'm not saying you should vote, vote Republican necessarily. I'm just saying that's the slippery slope of justification by relative morality, whatever your morality is. There's people on the other side that say, well, I believe in this and so I'm going to vote Democrat. Or I'm gonna... And what happens is we trick ourselves into thinking that we're relatively good people. And friends, that is a lie. And what Paul is saying here is that we are all children of Adam and through his transgression it is spread to all men and we are all represented by our father Adam in our birth as sinners, guilty, condemned. Children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. But the sentence continues. Well, let me read it again. Therefore, as one trespass, trespass sin led to the condemnation for all men, so, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what Paul is setting up now is a second Adam, a second representative of humanity. There's Adam, 
who has sinned and fallen, and now all are condemned through him. And then there's Jesus who stood where Adam stood and reclaimed what Adam lost. And through Jesus now, all those who will trust in him, now justification comes through Jesus. Now don't be tripped up here if verse 18 was the only verse that we had in the Bible that spoke about heaven and justification. We might think, oh my gosh, does everybody get to go to heaven no matter what? And and see, because we can be tripped up there. At the end of verse 18, it says that one man's act of righteousness, meaning Jesus' perfect, obedient life, and then his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection after his death leads to the justification and life for all men. So is Paul talking about, does that mean that all men get saved sort of no matter what? We all died in Adam and we all rise in Christ? Well, no. If that was the only verse in the Bible that spoke to that, we might wonder that. But we have to read the Bible in context and let the Bible interpret itself. The Bible speaks more to that issue. In fact, one verse up in verse 17, it says, if because of one man's trespass, meaning Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man. So even just one verse above, Paul qualifies that and he says, no, no, those who receive. And then we have the rest of the Bible that speaks to that issue, that only those who turn and trust and believe in Christ live forever with him. And so through, through Adam all fell and through Christ those that trust in him can reclaim their righteousness. So what's happening here is Jesus is reclaiming righteousness and he's representing us. Like, he's, he's, like that was a big word back in the 80s when I was a kid. Represent. You know what I'm talking about? Represent. <laughs> represent. Who, who are you repping? You know, you know what I'm talking about, Kwame. Do, do we say that anymore? I don't know if we, not so much. I'm a child of the 80s. I was listening to a Depeche Mode song on TV the other day, and it just kind of caught me. It just took me back into tight jeans and wear my collar up. And Anyway. Do you see what's happening in his life? It's not just some sort of distant God who comes and sort of automatically spends a few years here so that he can straighten things out. He's still God, but he's completely man so that he can fully represent us to the judge who is God the Father. And so he is, and I've said this a lot, but this is the point. He's standing where Adam and you and I stood and fell, but he's obeying completely and he's reclaiming what Adam and you and I have lost. And he is reclaiming righteousness and representing us. So in the temptation of Jesus, which is in the desert, and not just in the desert, it's not like he just endured that 40-day test and then everything was sort of scot-free until the cross. In fact, Luke, in his account of Jesus' temptation, says that the devil left him at that time to only return for another opportune time. Jesus lived a life of assault of demonic forces. And men and women in this room, if we think that we aren't being assaulted by demonic forces as well, meaning to tear us to shreds, then we are living in never-never land. We are living in a fairy tale, and we will get taken out. And so Jesus is representing this new Adam, this recreated humanity, this new man. So he is re-representing us to to God the Father once and for all. So whoever will turn and trust in Jesus can have this righteousness too, and that happens 
not just by his death on the cross and resurrection, as beautiful and glorious as that is, but through his perfect life where he stores up righteousness to give to us what we lost. So how does this relate to our temptation? I just alluded to a second ago that uh, if Jesus is being harassed by demons all through his life, we should not be surprised if we are as well because we are his people. Why is temptation so strong for Christians? Whatever your temptation is. And friends, don't make the mistake. I, I think we all, we, we tend to either overestimate temptation or underestimate it. And I think most of us tend to sort of minimize our, our sin. Don't we? There's sort of a socially acceptable sins that we all can kind of identify with when we're going around the prayer circle, you know. And so we all kind of buy, but I mean, nobody, nobody throws out the one there that's just like the stink bomb for the community group. Right? Nobody, nobody does that. But you've got yours. We've got our socially acceptable, prayer requestable temptations. And then we've got our, our deep down issues. Little note for a guy who's been battling sin since, I don't know, I was a little boy and I was aware of what sin is. And a guy who's been pastoring a church for seven years now. We all got them. We all got the unmentionables. We all got them. Why? This is what Dr. Russell Moore writes in his book called Tempted and Tried. Russell Moore is a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary really a national advocate for adoption, great writer, great preacher, great thinker. If you have the opportunity to read his blog or any of his books, um, I really encourage you to. We sell this book, Tempted and Tried, in the Resource Center. It's about the temptation of Jesus. I thought about just reading the book out loud to you guys today, <laughs> but that would have taken about seven hours, and I don't think you would have hung around for it. But this is what this is what Russell Moore says about why temptation is so strong for Christians. Have any of you had this experience like I have? That it seems like once you became a Christian, it became harder? You know? Why is that? Well, because before you were a Christian, you were dead. You were dead to God's voice, dead to God's spirit. You didn't have conviction. You just had sorrow for maybe worldly consequences. But once you become alive, now you can feel, and now everything's hot to the touch. Like, ow, ow, ow. So in, in a lot of ways, it becomes harder to fight sin after you've become a Christian. Why is that? This is, what, this is so good. This is what Dr. Russell Moore says. He says, temptation is so strong in our lives precisely because it's not about us. Temptation is an assault by the demonic powers on the rival empire of the Messiah. That's why conversion to Christ doesn't diminish the power of temptation, as we often assume, but actually, counterintuitively, ratchets it up. If you bear the spirit of the one the powers rage against, they will seek to tear down the icon of the crucified one they see embedded in you. 
ultimately, the agony of temptation is not about you or me. We're targeted because we resemble Jesus, our firstborn brother. We all, whether believers or not, bear some resemblance to Jesus because we share with him a human nature in the image of God. As we come to find peace with God through Jesus, though, we begin a journey of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. The demons shriek in the increasing glory of that light, and they'll seek even more frenetically to put it out of their sight. Oh, friends, that is worth, worth meditating on. That is a wonderful insight. So then, and I end with these three thoughts, how can we find grace to help in our time of temptation? So we've established a couple things. Jesus, the perfect God-man, fully God, fully man, comes, humbles himself, endures temptation, defeats it through his lifetime, stands where Adam stood and reclaims what Adam lost, and now offers us his righteousness. So how then can we, as we read in Hebrews, how can we with confidence draw near to Jesus' throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need? Well, very simple. First is we, we need to remember the gospel. Remember what, what has happened with our sin. That's why we rehearse the gospel over and over again, friends. Don't fall into the trick or the mistaken notion that the gospel is just a sort of piece of information, maybe four spiritual laws, that if you say this prayer, then you become a Christian, and then you kind of get on to the other stuff. The gospel is the good news of how God is reconciling lost sinners to himself through his son's work on the cross, his perfect life and obedience and death and burial and resurrection. It's the point of the universe. It's the point of the Bible. It's how God is deemed to glorify himself. And we need to remember that gospel. We need to remember what happened in the gospel if we're Christians. We need to remember that 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says that we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. We need to remember verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5 that says that God, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the gospel isn't just the good news that our sins are forgiven, as glorious as that is. The gospel is the good news, is that Jesus has reclaimed righteousness. Now Jesus gives us his righteousness, right? A couple years ago, I was on this little rant. I mentioned it for about six weeks in a row. That little bumper sticker that drives me crazy, where it says that Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And if you have that bumper sticker, I want to apologize in advance (laughs) for um, my demolishing of that halfway theology. You're not just forgiven. You've now received the imputed righteousness of Christ. You see that? You see, understanding the gospel is that now you're not just just forgiven. It's not like you control, alt, delete every time you sin to see if you can do it this time. 
But now what has been given to you, if you're trusting in Christ, is not just the forgiveness of sins, as glorious as that is, but now we receive what Jesus reclaimed. And we recite that over and over. And so when we're fighting sin, what we need to understand is we need to remember the gospel. So when we're in front of that computer screen, or when we're in that scenario, or when we're tempted to despair, when we remember that Jesus has not left us alone, but he's forgiven our sin and entered into our lives, endured it, and given us his character and righteousness. What's before that computer screen, young man, is not just you and your spirit, but the spirit of the one whose image you bear. And what God sees is not your blank screen started again afresh to see whether or not you're going to get it right this time but what God the Father sees when you're in that moment is the righteousness of his son because it has been given to you it's been reclaimed that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 you were bought with a price and now you bear the image you bear the righteousness of the one who reclaimed what was lost and remembering that in our moment of temptation means everything Because in my fight against sin, I'm not fighting with my grit. I'm fighting with the righteousness and the Spirit of God that is now mine. Does that mean we're going to conquer sin every time? No, friends. We just read that quote from Dr. Moore that says, we're going to get smashed up in this life because although we have been justified, we haven't fully been sanctified or glorified. So there's still a fight to fight. But we fight it with the imputed righteousness of Christ that is given to us when we remember the gospel. It's given to us at the cross, and when we remember the gospel, it empowers us to fight with Christ's righteousness, not our own. Secondly, we remember our identity. This is what 1 John chapter 3 says, right at the end of the Bible there, right before Revelation. 1 John chapter 3. Remember Jesus is proclaimed in his identity after his baptism as the son of God. This is my son. And now when we become Christians, we become sons and daughters of God too. This is what 1 John says, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, we're not fully, finally revealed and glorified, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Okay, so that's a promise. That's not, you know, if things continue to go well, and if you stay in the Bible study, and if you, no, if you're a Christian, you are in a riptide of God's predestining grace that is conforming you into the image of Jesus that you cannot swim against that tide. You are becoming what he has claimed you to be. And it says it right there. We will, we will be, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we, we need to remember that the most fundamental thing about us when we are fighting sin is that we are sons and daughters of God if we're trusting in Jesus. You're not the 19-year-old that keeps losing out to the battle of the image on the computer screen. You're not the 20-year-old girl who keeps sticking your finger down your throat to throw up and lose weight because some broken culture has given you some toxic perception of what beauty is. That's not who you are. 
You're not the 50-year-old guy that keeps running to the bottle. You're not defined by your struggle with alcohol. You're not defined by those things. If you're an adult and your children are away from the Lord, you're not defined by the mistakes that you made as a parent. No, the most fundamental thing about you in your fight against sin and the situation you're in is that you, like Jesus, are a son of God. And the enemy will come and try and chip away at that identity and tell you that it's just you, the broken, pornographic, alcoholic, poor parent that's fighting that sin. And that is not true. The truest and most fundamental thing about us is our identity. And friends, before I wrap this thing up, I just need to say in love and kindness, this only applies to you if you're trusting in Christ. This is not a sort of universal blanket statement who, that applies to everybody in this room just because you're here. This doesn't apply to you just because you're an American. It doesn't apply to you just because you grew up in the Bible Belt. It doesn't apply to you because of anything other than if you're trusting in Christ's representation for you before God the Father. In order to make that happen, you don't need to jump through some hoop. You don't need to go through some class. You don't need to muster. Don't look to yourself right now. Look to Jesus. Turn away. How do you become a Christian? How does this apply to you? You believe. You turn, which the Bible calls repent. You turn away from trusting in yourself, and you believe. You turn to Jesus in faith. That's what you, you have to do for this to apply to you. And then finally, and I end with this, we remember the gospel, we remember our identity, and we remember community. Like the fight against sin, friends, is not an individual sport. Nobody beats their unmentionables on their own. Nobody. The thing is, is sometimes our foe the devil will give us a sort of respite where we think we're doing good so that we can keep our unmentionable to ourselves only to build us up in false confidence and take us out decades down the road. Sanctification and the fight against sin is a community project. Let me read to you one final verse in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence because we know the gospel, we've responded to the gospel, we've trusted in the gospel, our identity is formed by the gospel, and now we can go to him by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen to this, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Okay, now here's where the community comes in. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another. And that word encouraging is packed full of application. 
encouraging. Brother, how are you? Man, I haven't seen you in a while. What's going on in your life? How's it going? It's not like we're just in sort of strange, weird, like, you know, private detectives in each other's lives. That's not it. But it's that we care so deeply for one another because we know how weak each of us are individually in our fight against sin, and we know we need each other. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, friends. And that's why being part of a local church, being connected in a community group is so important. Let me just say, if you are on the fringes of gospel community, if you're on the fringes of this church or some other church, I I beg of you, don't live life like that. Move to the center and make your fight for Christ, your fight against sin and your fight against temptation a community project. Give your heart to other believers. Confess sin and pray for other people and serve other people. And the way that plays out is primarily through our connection to the local church. This little body of people, this little dusty group of pardoned rebels that God has given us in here. Remember community. We sang a song at the beginning of the service, How Firm a Foundation. The last line says, That soul that all hell should endeavor to take, I will never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come now to respond to these words from Mark, respond to these words from Hebrews and Romans. Lord, I pray for my friend in this room who is a believer in Jesus already, who is battling against sin and flesh and temptation that is tearing them to shreds. Father, would you remind them of what Jesus has done of who they are and who they're with in this fight. For that friend that may be in here and they have never truly trusted in Jesus, Lord, there's no amount of persuasive words that I can utter to get them to believe. That's a miracle. That's something that only you can do. So, Father, would you be so kind as to make them alive? Let them see Jesus. Let them turn and trust in him. Not muster morality, but turn and trust in Jesus fully and finally give themselves over to him, the one who reclaimed what was lost. Lord, help us be people that as we fight against sin in this life, remember what was won in Jesus' life for us in his perfect obedience. And let us approach this life with great confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.